right now 103.5 is 11 10 and you know what we're going to kick it off now i'm going to open this mic and invite mr marty looney in the building hi marty hey how are you it's great to be with you today hey marty my dear it, friend of many years <laughs> many many years many <laughs> years uh worked on your campaign several years ago almost 15 20 yes. years ago <laughs> um and i was introduced to you by john martinez ah uh, yes our gr- late uh, great colleague uh, john did a superb job as a uh, uh, the first Latino state representative from New Haven, and uh, he was, uh, you know, a significant mover and shaker in the state House of Representatives. And his his death was a tragic loss to everyone. No, to everyone, national uh, caucus uh, for legislators. I mean, he, he had all kinds of positions. Yes. Um, and he and I had the privilege of getting to meet you in your campaign, and I worked in your and I walked your streets um, with Miss Bonito. I think it was her name. And she showed me all about the Cove, and I was working with Menen and uh, Ralph, Ralph Raul, Avila, Raul, Raul Avila. Yes, yep, and yeah. Menen and Alba Franklin and uh, uh, the Fairhaven Group. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the old crew, the old crew. We've been, yes. of course, different people have stepped in since then. Yes. I don't want to show your age. In I know. <laughs> so, uh, you're, so let's talk a little bit about you, Marty. Where, where, where are you from? I mean, originally, are you from the Cove? Oh, no, I was born, uh, born in New Haven. Uh, I lived here all of my life. Was uh, grew up in in uh, Fairhaven. Uh, went my my parents uh, were immigrants from Ireland. Uh, my father immigrated here as uh, so many others did because he had older siblings living in New Haven. Uh, my mother had an older sister who had moved to New York, so she went there. And then uh, they met at an Irish dance in uh, Rockaway Beach in New York, and uh, uh, then they married and lived, lived in New Haven. And uh, so I've lived here all of my life. Lived in grew up in Fairhaven. Went to St. Rose School. Mm. Uh, then went to Notre Dame High School in uh, in West Haven. Then then uh, went to Fairfield University uh, on an academic scholarship, and then uh, graduate school at the University of uh, of Connecticut, and then later uh, law school at the University of Connecticut. So I've been uh, been in New Haven all my life as a uh, as a friend of mine, as my law partner Jack Key said, you basically lived your whole life in a couple of zip codes. <laughs> Yeah, you did. <laughs> you have. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about homegrown, organic, you know, That's organic right. people. You're one of them. That's right. So <laughs> you've seen the transitions in these neighborhoods. You, I mean, you've obviously seen the transitions in Fairhaven from when you were a child to now. Yes. What are, or, I mean, outside of, of course, the demographic being totally different, what had you seen economically change in that area? Well, certainly, there's been uh, there've been increasing levels of uh, of poverty in in the community. The uh, uh, the advent of the uh, of the drug problems uh, that, that has been a, a problem, but still there is a core in in Fairhaven of uh, uh, of solid, hardworking people um, looking to uh, own their own homes and thrive in that neighborhood. So, in a while, it, while it has changed with the uh, different waves of uh, ethnic emigration over the years, there it's still a a solid neighborhood. There's lots of beautiful housing stock there, um, and it's still a vibrant community in many ways. Uh, Grand Avenue over the years uh, has gone an influx, and when you drive down Grand Avenue right now, there are very little empty storefronts on Grand Avenue, showing how uh, economically diverse and and rich that neighborhood is when it comes to businesses. Uh, what what do you think contributes to that healthy business atmosphere on that on that Grand Avenue sector? Well, I think Grand Avenue has always been a, a thriving commercial uh, area. There's a 
um, uh, lots of storefronts fronting on fronting on the avenue, um, lots of businesses operating there on, on the whole length of the avenue from from East Grand all the way to the uh, uh, all the way to Olive Street, and it's a uh, it's a, a thriving commercial uh, area just as you have you know Whaley Avenue in, in the western part of the city, and and also uh, uh, areas in the hill with uh, uh, Columbus and, and Washington and other places. Mm-hmm. But Grand Avenue needs to be uh, preserved as a vital commercial center. Uh, and uh, the small businesses operating there really are the lifeblood of that neighborhood. I mean, there's a distinction between Grand Avenue and Dixwell Avenue. I mean, we're talking about two two communities; they're very yes. distinct. And right now, there's more empty storefronts on Dixwell versus Grand Avenue. Uh, that's I true. Mean, and Dixwell, of course, is another uh, vital cog um, in in our community. And there's going to be a, a a significant, I think, stabilization on Dixwell Avenue will occur because of the uh, the resurrection of the Q House and some of the other developments that are planned for the Dixwell neighborhood. Um, I foresee a, a great recovery in Dixwell yeah, in the years to come as well. Oh, wow. You're very, you're very up to speed on every, <laughs> every part of New Haven, not just your own. But I guess you have to be, don't you, as, as a state? You have to be concerned about your neighbors to the left, right, north of you? Well, that's right. I represent uh, the eastern half of New Haven and, and uh, half of Hamden uh, as well. And uh, Senator Gary Winfield represents the western half of New Haven and uh, part of West Haven. Uh, but, uh, but I think uh, you know, New Haven did have a population gain. In the last census, that's an encouraging sign. We went from uh, about 130,000 to 135,000, uh, and uh, uh, that's a, a sign after years of declining population. We did have an increase, uh, and as did Bridgeport, as did uh, Stamford, had a major increase. The only one of the major cities that had a population loss was Hartford that lost 3,000 people between uh, 2010 and 2020. So there is, uh, there is growth. You know, We're seeing a tremendous growth in housing in downtown with the, all of the the new uh, you know, biotech businesses and the spin-off research from Yale that's taking place that's attracting uh, people to New Haven. Uh, so I think uh, uh, New Haven is uh, is on the rise in so many ways. Oh, we we always focus on the problems. You like to focus on the positive. I see right now in your vernacular, you like to focus on the, on the good things. Um, as a state senator, I mean, what got you, let's go backtrack a little because I like I, what got you into you're, you're a lawyer. You yes. work with Jack Keys. Then you became a politician. And what made you decide or who who tricked you into this? Well, actually, it's sort of the other way around. My friends kid me because I was already in the uh, state legislature when I went to law school. So people say, hey, there are lots of lawyers who become politicians. You were already a politician, so you're doing your career backward. But <laughs> but I will uh, I'll tell you how it, how it happened. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, went to Fairfield University, uh, majored in, in English with a minor in theology, then went to, uh, to UConn for graduate school, got a master's degree in English, and was working on a, a Ph.D. program in English there. But I always had a... A political interest. My uh, doctoral dissertation was going to be on the the political novels of Anthony Trollope, who was a uh, you know a Victorian era uh, era British novelist. And uh, however, um, yeah, I think my my whole life pattern might have been different, uh, except for for one uh, one particular evening. I was home for the weekend uh, visiting uh, with my mother. My my father had recently passed away, and then uh, was going to go back to to, to Yukon. And uh, I uh, decided I'd stay home a little longer, have dinner with my mother before heading back to stores. And the uh, the doorbell rang, and there were two people who were uh, going door-to-door campaigning in Fairhaven. There was a mayoral campaign going on that year, mm-hmm. and the two people were a member of the Board of Alders named Frank Logue, who was running for Alder, that Logue, year, running for yep. mayor that year. And with him was a young woman who was his campaign manager. Her name was Rosa DeLauro, and that was the day I met both of them. And uh, uh, they said that someone had given them my name as somebody who was um, active in the community because uh, St. Rose of Lima Parish 
uh, the boundaries of that parish were pretty much coterminous with a, a political ward. And someone had given them my name. They said, frankly, they had no political organization in that neighborhood. They were trying to build one. It was a stronghold for the incumbent organization of Mayor Gaida. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, a friends of mine had encouraged me to run for alderman at some point. Uh, and they said, well, this, this could be the year because there'll be uh, campaigns going on all over the city and a network of people running. And they said, we'd encourage you to do it. They asked me to come to a meeting that week that a sort of how to run for alder meeting that, that they were sponsoring. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I went to that meeting, was even more intrigued, uh, talked to my friends and said, well, let's do this. So I became uh, a candidate for the Board of Alders and the coordinator for Logue in that part of Fairhaven and uh, um, got carried my petitions to get on the ballot because I was running against an incumbent uh, alder and mm-hmm. uh, helped him get on the ballot by getting uh, petitions there. And uh, I defeated the incumbent Democratic alder by 27 votes in wow. the primary. Tight. And it was tight. And uh, Logue lost the ward by uh, about 180, but I won by 27. So there were a lot of, uh, of split votes there. The people knew me from the neighborhood and, and all of that. And then mm-hmm. uh, it, it worked out that in the general election, of course, that whole area of the city uh, went Republican and voted for John Esposito, who was mm. the Republican candidate because uh, it was a stronghold for uh, uh, the chairman, Arthur Barbarian, Mayor Gaida. So... Uh, that was the high watermark for the Republicans in terms of electing alders. They elected nine Republican alders uh, that year. So I lost to the Republican candidate in our ward, uh, Art DeSorbo, who mm. went on to become the minority leader of the of the board. But, uh, again, I, I, I lost by uh, about 200 votes. Logue lost by 500. And uh, then I was thinking, well, I better go back and uh, uh, concentrate on getting back to my Ph.D. program. But then I got a call from Rosa DeLauro, who was the new chief of staff to the mayor, and said, you know, we were impressed with the work you did in this campaign. We'd like to come, have you come be part of this administration to uh, to do uh, uh, outreach for the mayor, to uh, do wow. uh, research on neighborhood issues, to accompany him to public meetings and to follow up on the issues that are raised there. So that was my great political and governmental apprenticeship and education for uh, three and a half years in the Logan administration. So I would uh, go out to help set up community meetings for him, accompany him to those meetings, uh, take notes and follow up on the issues that uh, uh, that rose there. Also, arrange meetings of uh, activists to come into City Hall to meet with him, uh, communicate with the department heads about neighborhood issues. So it really was a nuts and bolts education in both politics and government. During those years, I also developed an interest in running for the legislature if an opportunity ever came because uh, volunteered mm-hmm. on a couple of legislative campaigns for people who were uh, close to Mayor Logue, including Bill Dyson, um, <sighs> Representative Tom Wall in the Hill. And uh, But in 79, when, uh, when Logue was defeated by, Mayor, uh, by then Police Chief Toledo in a primary, then I was at another crossroads and... Uh, figured what was I going to do next, and uh, uh, the state representative in the district where I live was a guy named Joe Carbone, who was mm-hmm. about my age, was very popular and uh, very uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, very competent as a state rep, but then all of a sudden he announced he wasn't going to run again uh, because he was going to become the new chief of staff to the new mayor. So all of a sudden there was an open seat in my district, wow. so I, I ran for that and, uh, again, didn't get the party endorsement, uh, uh, but qualified for a primary and uh, um, and won the primary, and uh, I thank uh, Rosa DeLauro, Stan Greenberg, uh, Louisa DeLauro, and others were key parts of my mm-hmm. campaign effort mm-hmm. for that. So I won the primary and uh, then was elected state rep. And then, uh, right after getting elected state rep, I uh, went to law school. <laughs> so I did that while I was uh, went to law school serving while I was serving the House of Representatives. So I was a, a state rep for uh, six terms and then uh, was elected to the state Senate when uh, my predecessor, Senator Tony Avalon, decided mm-hmm. not to run again. He was uh, about to become a member of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, so then I was elected to the, uh, the state Senate and uh, served as chair of the, the Banks Committee and then uh, ranking member on the Judiciary Committee when we were in the minority for one term. Uh, then I became chairman of the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee for three terms uh, and then majority leader of the Senate, chosen by my colleagues after that uh, for 12 years. And then for the last eight years, I've been the president pro tem. 
And then when I came out of law but, school, I, I started practicing uh, in 85, started practicing with Jack Keyes because uh, he was uh, running to succeed his father as probate judge that year, and, and they needed to take on mm-hmm. another lawyer to take on some of the work. So so Vinnie Morrow Sr., who was our town chair at the time, said, Marty Looney's graduating from law school. Why don't you talk to him? And he said to me, uh, uh, the Keys need another lawyer. Why don't you talk to them? So, so wow. Vinnie helped set that up. And uh, so I've been now with Jack for 37 years practicing law. And, and for those who don't know who Jack Keyes is, he's one of the prominent lawyers in the United States, let alone New Haven. Right. And the former and the probate judge in this district for uh, for many years. And uh, and his father uh, uh, was one of the greatest people I ever met. And uh, he was uh, there for the first 13 years uh, that I practiced with uh, with him and with Jack. And then since then with, uh, with I would Jack. say, that, can I just say this? You had a great mixture of drive, opportunity, and people around you. I mean, you have an eternal drive. That you wanted to do something. You always wanted us looking for something. But you had great people in your corner. I mean, you just mentioned six or seven great politicians that right now belong in the history books in here in New Haven for what they've done. And opportunities were just presented to you along the way. And you were always positioned perfectly to take advantage of those opportunities. I think that sums it up <laughs> in a nutshell. I, I, I've been blessed by uh, having opportunities uh, occur at a time when I was prepared to take advantage of them and uh, and having the support of uh, wonderful people who uh, uh, who uh, had faith in me and, and, and helped me to achieve those objectives. And uh, I'll be forever grateful for those opportunities. That's why I, uh, I love serving in the General Assembly as much today as I did the day I was first elected to uh, Whenever I get off the Capitol area exit and see that gold dome, I still get a rush of feeling about <laughs> what an honor it is to be elected by a group of people in the state mm-hmm. uh, to be their state senator. And it's uh, it's such a blessing and such an honor. I, I still see now. Now I look at you. I see this nice, humble kid from Fairhaven. Let me read off something here. Kebra, Kebra, Kebra. I don't know, Kebra. I want to say your name wrong again. LaShawn Smith, she's a listener. Good morning, Senator Looney. My grandmother, Hattie Turner, had a great amount of respect for you. Thank you for your service to our community my grandmother's example of being a community kebra, <laughs> of uh, being a community servant and your leadership at the Capitol are a few of the reasons I became a community service and advocate that. I am, as a nurse and serial entrepreneur with several businesses that create jobs and opportunity for our community. So thank you. Uh, well, thank you for uh, those comments. And, of course, Seb, uh, your grandmother, Hattie Turner, was one of the, the legendary uh, people in Connecticut, uh, in New Haven, community organizer, somebody who was a, uh, a magnet for those who needed help. And uh, she knew exactly how to advocate with government and social service agencies uh, uh, to, uh, to get people help if they thought they were in a vacuum and no one was listening. She found a way to make sure they got listened to. You are like a human encyclopedia now. <laughs> You're like a, a historian, a walking historian, because... You had first contact with so many community leaders over the time. Uh, what do you see are are good qualities in a community leader? I think first of all, um, it has to be about about service. You have to have a, a genuine interest in um, in in helping people um, and in uh, trying to find out what the authentic needs are and what is the best way to address those needs and. Uh, uh, that's why I'm a I'm I'm a Democrat. I'm a firm believer uh, in government. Uh, if it is run effectively, responsibly, and with accountability, it can be a great force for good uh, in in a community, in a city, in a state, in the nation. Uh, I think the the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt is an example of that. What he was able to do 
uh, when he came in to have an, an active government to counter the effects of the Great Depression is uh, is something I think is still the, uh, mm-hmm. the high watermark of government mm-hmm. achievement, followed by you know what President Johnson did uh, with the, the Great Society. And his administration, of course, was marred by the Vietnam War, but the social service policies that, that he mm-hmm. pursued are, are still you know, the foundation today. So uh, that's a fundamental difference. I think, the, I think Republicans um, um, do not believe in the efficacy of, of government. Uh, they would, in some cases, rather see people suffer than have government have the power uh, to assist them. Uh, you know, Grover Norquist was saying at one point that uh, he'd like to see government get to be so small that he could some point strangle it in the bathtub. Uh, I, I, I just saw a recent article in the New York Times uh, that said that uh, states that are run by Republican governors uh, take more than give, and states that are run by Democratic governors give more back to the government than they actually receive from the government. That's absolutely right. And we have, we have a, a Republican state senator actually serving uh, now uh, with us who in a speech on the Senate floor at one point said he looks forward to the day where the people of Connecticut shouldn't have to pay any attention at all to what state government does, that it will be empowered to do so little. Mm. You know, that's the stark contrast, I think, between, uh, uh, between them uh, and us. You know, when my, when my son was little, we lived on the, uh, the second floor on Woolsey Street in Fairhaven, and my mother was on the first floor, and uh, uh, they used to play a little game where if she had loose change around, he would grab the loose change, and she would chase him and make, <laughs> make believe she was chasing him to get mm-hmm. her money back. So one day, uh, a little while before that, he had asked me about, well, what's the difference between Democrats and Republicans? He was about six or seven years old, and I said, well, Democrats... Uh, feel that government has an obligation to help people in need, uh, those who are struggling, those who need some assistance, uh, and Republicans basically don't feel that obligation. Uh, mm-hmm. They feel that people should be left on their own to sink or, or, or swim, unless those people tend to be you know, well-connected corporate people uh, looking for a government subsidy, and then they're, they're certainly willing to help them. So I didn't realize how much of the lesson he had absorbed until uh, one day he grabbed some change. He was headed up the stairs. He was laughing. My mother was chasing him. She said, you know, stop him. The little thief took my money. I said, that's Michael. Give grandma back her money or she'll be one of the poor people. And he said, I don't care. I'm a Republican. <laughs> and of course he was not, but it showed, showed me that he absorbed the lesson <laughs> that I had told him. <laughs> that is that is another article. I think this was from the post that I mentioned that like Connecticut is like the number one socialist state in the country in regards to monies and how it's spent on the community. Well, we see ourselves as part of a peer group of, of progressive states, uh, uh, Massachusetts, uh, New York, New Jersey to some extent, uh, California, Illinois, and Connecticut, I, I think, uh, mm-hmm. stand in the forefront of, of having um, a- active state governments that recognize an obligation to, uh, uh, to provide for social service needs. Mm. Uh, I, was t- I was mentioning earlier about the disparity in housing and uh, the need for low-income housing affordable housing, also affordable home ownership, which is the next level of, I guess, the progression of affordability, especially here in New Haven um, and the Fairhaven community is is, is eventually going to happen where people are going to start getting priced out. What protections can we have to assure that there is affordable homes for people to purchase, especially single family homes? Because that's the American dream, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And the, the key is, I think, making sure uh, that uh, that that people can afford uh, the mortgages that are going to be needed if they're going to be home. We need to have more uh, capacity to subsidize mortgages for uh, for moderate uh, income people, down payment assistance plans, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, because we know that that neighborhoods that have a strong component of owner occupied homes are strong neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the people have a, have a great interest in maintaining their property, uh, even if they're multifamily homes. If the owner is a resident there, uh, you have a stable community and. Uh, and also a network where people be, be feel part of the community. They become 
uh, members of neighborhood and community organizations, and that becomes a uh, a stable neighborhood rather than one that is uh, rootless in some way. So, so we need both to provide a, a significant increase in affordable uh, rental housing, uh, but also to make a commitment to home ownership, uh, both by by finding ways for down payment assistance programs, putting money into that, as well as mortgage subsidies. Well, let's start with education then, right? Because yes. isn't that where it all starts? I mean, if you're not financial literate, if you're not well educated, of course you're not going to make ends meet. You're going to uh, find it very more more difficult i should say to make that transition from renters to home ownership um what can we do all right you know as you can tell here in new haven we have issues with the new haven board uh miss tracy is stepping down i am later this year uh there was an article that they misnumbered the number of days the students should have been in school last year uh what's going on with our education system and where do you see positive changes can occur well, first of all, I think the thing that was uh, most alarming was the decline in reading and math scores that was uh, was reported, and the the reluctance of the New Haven Board to adopt the uh, the new reading curriculum, which is shown to be effective. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when when the state uh, adopts the curriculum, it's uh, uh, it's something that the, the towns are supposed to act on. It's not mm-hmm. a suggestion; it's it's a requirement. And uh, uh, I think uh, clearly the pandemic has had a much greater effect in uh, in in lower income communities and, and lower income neighborhoods within. Uh, those communities with uh, more uh, uh, disruption of education, more time lost, uh, less capacity to uh, to be online and make up for lessons that are lost in school. I know that in uh, in fact, New Haven itself did a study uh, during the pandemic of looked at a, a a street in Fairhaven. I believe they looked at Ferry Street and they looked at I think it was Yale Avenue in Westville, and the there were streets that had similar numbers of kids enrolled in the public school system, mm-hmm. uh, but the kids who were successfully connected online. Mm-hmm. In Westville, were so much higher, and mm-hmm. the kids who were successfully connected online and uh, and sustained that in Fairhaven. It was just another uh, issue of the manifestation of the difference that uh, that poverty makes. Now, we recognize that in in uh, this year's uh, budget and in legislation that we passed with Senate Bill One and Senate Bill Two, which were and House Bill Five Zero Zero One. So these were really high priority bills mm-hmm. for both the House and Senate Democratic Caucus, and we are putting a great deal more money and resources into early childhood education. Uh, in support for uh, pre-K uh, and daycare programs, because that's where it all has to start. Because we know, in many cases, if people come from a deprived atmosphere and if kids have not had quality preschool or quality care at home, they come to kindergarten already, sometimes a couple of years mm-hmm. behind mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. developmentally, and they may never catch up because uh, immediately they sense that difference, uh, and school sometimes becomes a place of humiliation for them rather than achievement. Um, and those are the kids who, within a few years, are are... Uh, truant, and then shortly after that may get into trouble with the juvenile system uh, and then spin out of control altogether. But uh, if kids are able to be successful and be uh, rewarded for their achievement and feel good about themselves in the early school years, uh, the battle is really um, halfway won at that point. If kids do well in kindergarten, first, mm-hmm. second, third grade, you know, they're on their way to doing well forever. Uh, mm. And if they, if they, It's so, so yeah. true. You're right. You're right. Uh, you get them early, hook them in, you know, at, at those beginning stages, and they develop. But unfortunately, right now, we're at a point in, in our history, and especially with, with, with regards to our children, they do not have the skill set, the reading level, the, the computation levels, uh, the, you know, the skill levels to take these jobs, right, that you need, high, well-paying jobs, to go and eventually buy a home in four or five years because they just don't have that baseline uh, of education. So how do we help remedy these children now that, got passed on because it was a pass fail for two years almost right that's why we really have to renew efforts now in, in kids who uh, may have lost those two years of education to have uh, 
uh, intensive remediation programs, uh, to put more resources into after-school programs to help kids catch up, summer programs uh, as well. There has to be there has to be a lot of supplements uh, to the standard education uh, year in order to help make up for that lost time um, and to uh, to have kids kids be able to re- recapture those skills mm-hmm. uh, and catch up to grade level because it's a uh, it's so important. Then at the other end, we also have to have uh, programs for uh, high quality technical education. Uh, for those who uh, want to go into the trades or into a, a technical program after high school rather than college, because not everybody uh, wants to go to college right after uh, right after high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to find a way where people can be gainfully employed uh, without a college education. However, um, even manufacturing jobs are much more technically sophisticated. Yeah, they're, they're basically run by machines. Basically you have run to know, by machines. Yeah. So you have to be skilled in running the machine and and um, uh, uh, reading the complex operating manual for that machine, mm-hmm. uh, so you can't uh, do what people did years ago. My father uh, worked as a, uh, uh, a forklift operator at, at, at Winchester's uh, for many years. Wow. And, uh, you know, he was an immigrant from Ireland. Most of the people he worked with were, uh, you know, were uh, immigrants. He was a, a bright man, but had uh, mm-hmm. uh, not a lot of formal education. Mm-hmm. But he was able to support his family. Once the union got into Winchester's, uh, that he helped work to get in, and then and wages went up. Uh, you know, we were able to do well because. Uh, you know, lived carefully and modestly, but uh, uh, we weren't struggling. And my mother stayed mm-hmm. home and didn't go to work until I was in high school. Wow. So uh, it was, but it was, you know, a, a good union job, uh, mm-hmm. even though it didn't require a lot of skills when he went in. That was the secret. And uh, uh, but those jobs now are, are not scarce, but they also <laughs> require a higher level of entry level skill. Than they did at that time. I mean, right now, I mean, we were even talking about McDonald's. I, I I got a friend of mine who manages and owns a few McDonald's, and if the the machine goes down. He struggles to find individuals that can actually do the math to keep it running. Oh, with, to, make, to make the change. To make like the that. change. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just, I mean, that's how bad our education system yes, has gotten, yes, yeah, yeah. especially here in New Haven where you can't even run a business based on the basic knowledge of your employees. Where I mean, you can you, we can say now that we can supplement the education, but – we really do make have to make an effort because I know a couple of kids who graduated high school. They were just passed on. They oh, yes. they didn't they didn't. Some of these people are not graduating without being able to read or do basic math. Where, I know, that's where the do we, how do we help of, them? Well, that's the phenomenon of social promotion. You know that uh, kids are just passed along. But I, I think that uh, you know we don't necessarily in some cases want to hold people uh, back because that may increase the likelihood that they'll drop out. But that's where I think you you need an intervention with. Um, a significant additional uh, support, tutoring uh, to help those kids catch up. After-school programs, summer programs, um, supplemental tutoring, uh, extra assistance during the school day that focuses upon uh, weak areas that the student may have. I think that uh, we have to identify where those weaknesses are and then address them. And so, uh, so otherwise we fail. Would you be on board with like a, a post-high school like you know, uh, trade program or something like that that, that is free to, you know, because... Of course, no one's going to be able to afford trade school. Some of these institutions, you know, institutes that are out there that train people in mechanics and all that, those cost money. Is there a, free, is there a, 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 a way to provide a free version of these but that provide very basic knowledge? Well, I, I would certainly uh, support that. We do have, uh, obviously, technical schools and uh, technical high schools, but there, mm-hmm. uh, there aren't enough of them, and I don't think they can accommodate the large number of kids who might be interested but also we have to make sure that the uh, uh, the kids are prepared to actually function in those uh, in those programs. So uh, I would support anything that uh, that bolsters uh, public technical education for students because uh, again, student debt, as we all know, is a, is a huge problem. And uh, one of the crises we and I, that's why I'm so pleased that 
uh, President Biden's uh, uh, has successfully pushed for uh, for the uh, provision that will uh, will forgive a certain amount of, of uh, student debt because we know that there are kids coming out of college now who are hugely in debt. Their mm-hmm. futures are already burdened mm-hmm. by that. It's going to mm-hmm. postpone uh, marriage and family formation, postpone buying houses. They won't be able to afford a down payment because they have uh, uh, student debt. And the ones who are the worst off are the ones who borrowed a lot of money to go to college and still, for whatever reason, did not finish college. Uh, just because you didn't get the degree doesn't mean you don't still have the debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are are the ones who are actually the worst off. Mm. And, and, and but so, so we have various various levels of education that needs to become more affordable that's i think that's absolutely right probably the number one thing uh and and also a like a, i would i would say like a post high school type program that kids can go to and either learn a trade or catch up on those skills that they missed out on you know because the attention that 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 individuals that have difficulties in that system they don't get that support I mean, they get muddled in with with a, a they get clumped into a group and then they get pushed on. How do we focus on those kids? I mean, do, is there money to fo- to allow people to focus and to provide uh, teachers with more resources? Well, yes, that's one of the things we did work on in, in this year's uh, budget and, and in some of the the bills that we passed to address these needs that have existed a long time but have been exacerbated and uh, and uh, come, I think, to greater public attention because of of the pandemic. Uh, one of the crises we face, and we're going back to student debt, is that the cost of higher education has accelerated uh, for the last 30 years mm-hmm. at a rate far greater than standard inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it is, is, it's so uh, damaging. Now, when I went to college uh, many years ago, it, I went to a private university, Fairfield University. I uh, got an academic scholarship that covered uh, most of my, uh, my tuition. But uh, a kid in those days, if you were uh, en- enterprising and had a part-time job and uh, plus the scholarship aid I had, you know, it cost my parents very little for me to go to college, and uh, because the cost was uh, reasonable, even mm-hmm. though for even though it was a private university and the public universities were less so, that's certainly not the case now. Is that you know some private universities are, are charging up to eighty thousand a year? You know, mm-hmm. maybe some you get financial aid maybe to cover some of it, some maybe some scholarship aid that doesn't have to be repaid, but uh, the bulk of the financial aid is in the form of loans, and that's a that's a crushing debt for people. Even the public universities are far more expensive than that, than they were, and they're. I think we reached a, a tipping point where uh, that whole system of rising costs in higher education uh, has to be examined because we can't have uh, inflation at triple the standard rate of inflation uh, going on year after year after year in higher ed. And we're, and we're not even you're talking about inflation, but we're not even talking about income. I mean, you, right. the, the income from year to year is in the, in the you know one percentile or even That's less. Right. That's Inflation's right. Inflation's at what five to nine. Yep. Yes. And then yep. college, we're talking about twenty to thirty. That's right. That's right. And that's the. Uh, and that just can't be sustained. You know, so you know, it can't be sustained. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a 29% difference between year yes. to year, college going up, and pay is not even move budging. That's so, right. I mean, people yeah. are making less this year, from what I understand, than last year. Yes, yeah, yeah. But once we tally up the end of the year, I mean, people are going to make less this year than they did last year due to inflation. Right. I mean, my, my son's senior year at Yale, uh, 20-something years ago, was $28,000. It seemed like a lot of money then. Well, congratulations. It's, My daughter goes to Hopkins this year, 61000 There you go. And, that, and, and <laughs> Yale is now seventy-five or eighty, I guess. But you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's, good luck. Yeah, that, that shows you that uh, the, how, how much the cost of inflation for higher ed has gone up far beyond the standard inflation rate. You know, that's, uh, uh, that's just, uh, just, just a, a sign of, the, of things going off the rails. Uh, but you, but we need education. We need people to be out there, go out there, and, and don't be. I mean, we're having these conversations. If you're 
we need to lower taxes in the state. This is comes from Carlick uh, on YouTube. We need lower taxes in the state. Is that possible to achieve? We, I mean, we are, do have one of the highest tax uh, rates in the country, but do we do we can we lower taxes and still provide the services that we're providing? We can lower taxes on some, but we will have to raise taxes on some to do that. We need we need more revenue, uh, which in my view means that we need to have uh, a higher rate of taxes on those at the highest levels of income. Uh, and That's not going to happen. And we don't happen. <laughs> we don't happen to tax people all that high. We need a, a higher rate. Higher tax on capital gains and dividends and interest income for mm-hmm. those who are at the very high end of our. Oh no! Don't tax, tax my scale. dividends anymore. Come on now, you're already getting like forty percent <laughs> on my dividends. <laughs> but we need to, you know, because where else are we going to get the money? We don't want to raise the income tax uh, on moderate income people. We don't want to mm-hmm. raise the sales tax. We don't want to raise um, uh, other taxes. But there is great, uh, there is great wealth in the state. We did a study uh, from the uh, our office of fiscal analysis said that. For people who earn less than $100,000 a year, mm-hmm. um, less than 10% of their income comes from investment income, dividends, interest, and capital gains. Yep. When you get to the level of $2 million a year, I don't know if there's a, a typical person making $2 million, but at that point... Oh, well, Marty 20- Looney's of the world. We're going. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, that's a decade worth of it. But uh, for people who are at the $2 million a year income and higher, mm-hmm. only uh, 20% of their income comes from earned income and 80% comes from investment income. Uh, that's the difference, you know. And for people under a hundred thousand, it's ten percent in unearned income and ninety percent or more in earned income. So you're what well, you're telling me that is I need to make more money so I can pay less taxes. That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but as as highly improbable. I mean, but the the thing is too that the people that are paying taxes they come from communities that they are contributing more to the tax base. You know, they 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 have more influence over the political structure. You know how you know how you know you know how these packs work. Right, you know right. those communities got more money, so how do they how do they get, still gain the upper hand? I mean, in in the legislature, versus you know philosophies from the inner city that we have, because very few people in the inner city are not two million. They they more likely are from the the burbs than they are from well, New Haven. That, that's right, and that's our uh, our challenge too. Is that uh, a state like Connecticut? Uh, we have our, our cities have the same challenges that urban areas have all over the country, but we have the extra challenge that none of our cities are large in area, uh, substantially significant uh, populations that Mm -hmm. can help compel a political solution. Mm -hmm. We have to work by sort of guerrilla warfare to build coalitions with our first ring suburbs in particular, because if you look at it, uh, if you look at the population of New Haven, Hartford and Bridgeport together, the three of them together uh, constitute less than 12% of the state's population. Uh, If you look at at, uh, uh, Boston by itself is about 12% of the past, uh, population of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, Providence actually is the biggest city in New England relative to its state's population. It's mm-hmm. about 16%. Mm. So, But in New York, over 40% of the population in New York State is within New York City. Mm-hmm. So 40% of the legislators in Albany are representing districts in New York City. Uh, mm. So we don't have the uh, the benefit of, uh, of, a, of a huge population center that's an urban area. Uh, that's been a challenge. It's a uh, in fact, and dwindling. It's dwindling. A hundred years ago, Connecticut was a much more urban state than it is now because in the 1920 census, uh, New Haven then had 160, 162,000 people wow. uh, when the population of the state was uh, only about a million and a half. So at that point, New Haven um, had uh, you know 12 or 15 percent of the state's population. And uh, mm-hmm. Hartford, the same. Bridgeport, the same. So those three cities were much bigger as a percentage of the state's population than, mm-hmm. they, are, than they are now. So that's why we have to be creative. We can't dictate something, but we have to count on being able to build coalitions 
of like-minded Democrats in at least the first-ring suburbs, and uh, fortunately we've had that. But once you go beyond the first ring, <laughs> it gets uh, harder luck. to find allies. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cause that money money talks, and there's a lot of money. Um, and, and the farther you go away from the city, and I've noticed that too, and, and especially with the Puerto Rican population, that you saw come and go in Fairhaven. Puerto Rican population in Fairhaven came and went. And where did they go? So as they made their money, they moved to the suburbs, to North Haven, everywhere else. That's, that's, that, that's right, in many ways. I remember uh, back in 1975, as I mentioned when I was first campaigning, there was uh, there was one uh, Puerto Rican family on a on a certain block of Salt and Stall Avenue. It was a man named Louis Mercado, who mm-hmm. was a machinist. He was a widower. He had two sons. But he was also a poet that wrote very um, uh, superb, sensitive poetry in both Spanish and in English. And oh. I met him when I was canvassing. went back another time to have dinner with him and his sons. But uh, he was sort of a pioneer at the time, and then uh, large others mm-hmm. numbers followed him. But I remember, you know, that Gumercindo uh, uh, Del Rio and uh, Grumpy Del Rio and Carlos Rodriguez and, and others who were uh, instrumental in, in helping to attract people to come from Puerto Rico to New Haven mm-hmm. uh, to work, you know, Herman Garcia and, uh, and the Rodriguez family, you know, enormous, uh, mm-hmm. uh, enormous parents and their family were, uh, were really pioneers in helping to, uh, uh, to build up the Puerto Rican population in New Haven in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm. And and now they've they've done well for themselves. They got the education. They moved on. Uh, now we need those people to come back and contribute to these neighborhoods, at least politically. Make sure that if you do, if you're a Hispanic, you're Puerto Rican, you moved out to North Haven, you still have influence over politics in New Haven in a weird most way. But through your politician and making sure your politicians are aware that you know they they also contribute to you know they all vote on the same. Legislation legislation that affects everyone. But, of course, the advantage with the uh, Puerto Rican population is they were already American citizens to participate in in democracy right away. And, and of course, uh, uh, those coming from other nations in in, uh, Central and South America don't have that advantage. No, right now you're you're disadvantaged because right now in Fairhaven you have, I I can't even guess how many thousands of votes that do not even exist right now. Yes, yes, yep. And so, and, and that shows up in the uh, the voter totals from those those wards too. Right. So, yeah. how can you get more more monies when? And that's what people don't understand about education. Oh, we, we you know why don't we, we why don't we get more money? It was because as New Haven tax pool, we don't put in enough to to be able to request out versus a small town up north that you know contributes millions of dollars to the government, and their education system and schools look way different. Right. Well, New Haven and, uh, does get a substantial amount of, uh, of money from the state, as does Hartford and Bridgeport. And in the past couple of years, uh, we were really, really able to make a breakthrough to benefit New Haven in terms of increasing uh, the payment in lieu of taxes uh, okay. money that is paid by the state uh, to replace the money from tax-exempt uh, uh, private colleges and universities and hospitals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, New Haven got an infusion of $50 million a year in additional money in that category because, wow. uh, again, we were able to build a, a coalition while – while it's only the larger cities that have uh, those institutions, uh, for the most part, having mm-hmm. colleges, having hospitals, and uh, uh, and having private universities, uh, the uh, the state partially reimburses them for the revenue not collected. But uh, we also reimburse uh, communities for state property as well that's not taxable. And we made a coalition with represented with the legislators from Eastern Connecticut who said, "Well, our towns are poor also. They have a low property values mm-hmm. in many cases." So what we did was we created a three-tier structure so that those whose net grand list per capita is under $100,000 mm-hmm. would get 50% pilot reimbursement. And for those between 100 and 200000 they'd get 40. For those over that, would get 30. Prior to that, everybody was only getting in the low 20s. 
So for New Haven, it was a huge increase for most of the cities, but everybody got an increase. So we were able to build a coalition for it. So wow. even the, uh, the wealthier communities, the, the real problem in that was prior to that change, uh, Greenwich got the same pilot reimbursement for Greenwich Hospital property that New Haven got <laughs> yeah. for Yale New Haven or that yeah, yeah, Hartford yeah. got for Hartford Hospital. That's now changed. Oh, okay, good, because yes. Greenwich, <laughs> Greenwich doesn't really need a... No, their mill rate is 11, and they're well able to fund all their service. <laughs> oh, eight, uh, wow. Because the, property is so valuable. Yeah, very valuable. And again, shows the difference. The per capita net grant list in Greenwich is about three quarters of a million dollars a year, over 750000 At the other end, the 169th place town is New Britain, where the per capita value is less than $70,000. That shows you the stark contrast in a single state. Wow, uh, diversified. You're just just like your constituents are diversified. You have them all. You have from the richy rich all the way down to, you know, the most humblest of individuals, and you care for them each with lots of love. We are running out of time. We're running out of time. It happens every time. See, look at that. You walked in like not, not even five minutes ago. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about um, what would you like to? You know what. You can have the mic. Talk to New Haven if you want. You're listening yes. to 103.5 WNHH, New Haven Independent.org, powered by La Voz Hispana. Harry Dross is in the back giving me some times, and this is Marty Looney giving you his final thoughts. Okay, well, uh, one of the things I'd like to say, looking forward to the next uh, term in the General Assembly, is to continue um, our struggle to enhance regional cooperation. Uh, that's uh, some, something that we have not had in the state. We have 169 and jealously self-protective municipal fiefdoms. Uh, Self-preserving. Un- unwilling to cooperate with others, unwilling even to, uh, uh, to, to get the economies of scale that they might be able to do, and, uh, and freely holding the state back in, in many ways. People come to Connecticut from other states. They say, you're a very small state to have 169 uh, separate towns and no, and no regional government at all. Um, we have far too many school districts in this state. Too many small-town school districts have actually been losing population uh, over the last decade, and yet... Uh, they want to continue to get the same amount of education that they've had, and they refuse to, uh, to to combine into more regional districts. We have to make a, a breakthrough on that. Part of that, again, goes to the affordable housing component of, mm-hmm. of towns looking through zoning practices to keep out uh, lower-income people as well. The two go together. But what we have to, to look at is that we've had one successful model for uh, for regionalism in the state, and that was when we consolidated the probate districts in the state back Mm -hmm. in 2010. We had 117 separate districts, and the system was not functioning well. Some of the probate courts were only open a couple of days a week. The system was running deficits. So we transformed that system and reduced 117 districts down to 54. And since 2010, we've had a much more successful, vibrant, and uh, uh, effective probate system. But what it meant in many cases was uh, this was really controversial because it meant abolition of a number of elected positions because the probate judges are the only elected uh, judges in the state. All the others are the Superior Court judges and Appellate and Supreme Court judges are appointed, but the probate judges are, are elected. And yet, uh, we were able to, operating on the principle that any town with a population under 40,000 should probably become part of a regional district. The larger cities would continue to be single-town districts, but that has worked very well. We need to do something along those lines uh, for, for school districts. Uh, we need to have towns... Uh, uh, be able to, to combine as economic entities to attract businesses to a region, uh, mm-hmm. not just looking at, at when a new economic uh, uh, development initiative comes into a region, there's one town that's a winner because it gets a new development and everyone else that competed mm-hmm. for it is a loser. There are other states that do it differently. They have a revenue-sharing uh, system like Minnesota's had for years called the uh, the net grand list, uh, uh, the guaranteed tax base system, where towns 
uh, in an entire region benefit from any new uh, factory or economic development facility that comes into any town in their region. A portion of the new revenue is is uh, is a portion to all the towns in the region, not just the one that actually has the physical development. Mm. And that has really helped an entire region to market itself uh, successfully over the years. We need to think creatively and uh, and move along those lines. So we're being uh, we're being held back by our current system that certainly was understandable in colonial times, <laughs> but uh, uh, not any longer. Is not sustainable. And is not sustainable. Yes. You sound when you're talking about this region. You, you do sound like a, a. It sounds more like government is turning into a business, and we need to consolidate the upper management of well, the true. state. That's one of the problems too. We have so many of these small school districts are top heavy with administrators. Yeah. You have an administrative layer, then you have the uh, the administrators who are in schools. Now, some people say, "Oh, you're talking about closing schools." Not talking about closing schools. We probably even uh, we need to maintain the schools we have for the most part, except where enrollment has really fallen. But we need administrative consolidation at the higher end. Mm-hmm. We don't need as many districts uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, highly paid superintendents, deputy superintendents, and all of the other central office bureaucracies supervising a very small number of schools. That's where the savings could be. Wow. Wow. Is it, is it, Marty, time is up. You came here with solutions. We talked about lots of problems, <laughs> but you talked more about solutions and, and a whole career full of them. Um, do you have an opponent coming up, I guess? I don't know how, how you view this. I mean, you're already talking about future ventures in the legislature as as if November is all passed by and you're ready to go back to work. Well, I never take anything for granted, but I you know I do have plans for the uh, for the next term. I do have an opponent uh, this time. I've had uh, opponents in the past. I always campaign hard whether I have an active opponent or not, and this year won't be any different in that regard. Very good. Thank you very much, Marty. Uh, I apologize for the, for the mishap up front, but it still turned out to be a great conversation. Appreciate for all your knowledge, your history. Um, I hope everyone that was out there listening right now, you got a class one-on-one on how to get involved in politics, be successful in politics, and give back to your community, such as Marty Looney has. I'd be happy to come back anytime. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to 103.5 FM, WNHH, New Haven, Independent.org, powered by La Voz Hispana CT. And I want to thank again Mr. Harry Dross for everything. You guys have a great afternoon. Great afternoon.